Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. You won't be surprised to hear that I marked exam scripts until I couldn't bear it any longer. And then I watched Twin Peaks Return episode five. And I have to say, I haven't got a great clue at the moment what's going on. We are recording one day before the UK general election. It's Wednesday morning. Um, I foolishly watched the first episode of the remake of The Handmaid's Tale and got incredibly depressed. Is it good? It's really good, but it's really strong. I'm joined by Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey, and Chris Brooke. I went to... Uh, what, is it? what is it? A very highbrow lecture. Yes, indeed. Uh, I went to the British Museum and was speaking on a panel about uh, Western civilization. And the four of us sat around this table in my office, and we are in my office if you hear the wind blowing, that's because it's quite windy outside. Two years and a month ago, it was May, wasn't it, 2015, the day before the last UK general election to talk about what we thought might happen. I think we've learned a bit since then, including maybe not to trust the polls too much. I thought we'd all learned that lesson. Though. It's really, really hard to remember every time a scary poll comes out. But the last two years have been, I think it's fair to say, the most dramatic in British political history since the Second World War. Is that fair? Maybe bits of the 1970s we've talked about. But anyway, an amazing two years. And then even in that context, the last six weeks have been extraordinary, depressing. Of course, this campaign has been interrupted by two terrorist attacks, which will inevitably, I think, overshadow how people remember it. But even notwithstanding that, it's been remarkable. And here we are a day out. I'm not going to ask you to predict unless you want to. Feel free if you do want to, to (laughs) take a stab at what might happen. But there is still a range of possible scenarios, and certainly the polls, which we no longer trust, are suggesting probably a wider range of possible outcomes for this election than for any that I can remember, ranging from a hung parliament, which is just about still, I think, within the bounds of possibility, through to a Tory landslide, which is certainly still within the bounds of possibility. So what I thought we could do is just talk about four possible outcomes of this election, because what's interesting is that the different outcomes just have a completely different dynamic for where British politics might go. And rather than talk about which one we think might happen, though, feel free to say, talk about what would happen were this to come true. And if we start with the hung parliament scenario, because our friends at YouGov, I think that they've gone a bit quiet about this, but I think their polling is still suggesting if you combine their polling and their model, which is not a poll, but tries to use what they think they learned from Brexit about how voting patterns might play out in different constituencies, is still suggesting what they said about two weeks ago, which was that the Tories could lose seats in this election. So it roughly said 310 Tory seats, maybe 250, I think, Labour-ish. The SNP still have their big swathe in Scotland, 40 plus, and then just pickings for the others, Lib Dems and others, barely anything. So on that scenario, how do you form a government? may well not happen. I think we have to be clear about that. But were that to happen... Theresa May looks totally damaged. Jeremy Corbyn can't be Prime Minister because he can't form a coalition and he can't lead a minority government. It's not like people are going to turn to Tim Farron and go, you, you give it a go. Um, what? I genuinely, and I was talking to a senior civil servant about this last night, who also looked confused about how you would actually get from there to someone being Prime Minister. I think there's one scenario that makes a certain amount of sense, 
and that would be for Theresa May to resign if there's Imme- a hung parliament immediately. immediately. If there's a hung parliament, it's massive humiliation for her after calling the election, demanding a large mandate from the British public. And one of the things about the Parliamentary Conservative Party is that when they want to do things fast, they can do things fast. So I can imagine a scenario where she stood down immediately and within a week we've had the balloting of the Parliamentary Party to produce a new Prime Minister. So they would bypass the membership, which they've done in the past? They did that last time, and I think in emergency situations they could do that again. The executive of the 1922 committee has a great deal of power in these situations. I regret to say, in in this scenario, the most obvious emergency leader for the Conservative Party would be Boris Johnson. They'd be looking for a quick second election to try to resolve the stalemate. And he's the figure who isn't especially compromised by the failure of the May government in this context, in this scenario, whom the Conservatives believe to be popular with the public and to have a series of qualities that Theresa May doesn't have. And they, they would be working on the assumption that they would be a minority government. They're not going to form a coalition with the Lib Dems again. There aren't enough of them. And they're not going to form a coalition with the Northern Irish MPs. So they'd be a minority government who would stagger on and another election would come sooner rather than Well, later. they could have the Democratic Unionist support. But a formal coalition? No. A I minor- it wouldn't need to be. It would be a sort of supply and confidence. But, but would the expectation be... I mean, poor Brenda, who didn't like this election, would the expectation be that in about six months' time there'd be another one? Probably, because this happened before with Baldwin, right? In the 20s, the Conservatives lost the election, lost seats, minority government, and they basically said, because there are no rules, there's no process, there's a a disordered process for the UK to go through to go from a hung parliament to what actually happens in terms of forming a government. So the government that was there before the election stays in place until another is formed. So Theresa May... I'm very interested to see what's going on inside her coterie to say if this happens, whether or not she does stand down, because she's got such a small group of advisors, it's such a tight group, they seem to have a very, very small bubble around them. Will she step aside? Yeah, but they've had a grim six weeks. Very, very, very grim six weeks. So you could see a minority Conservative government stumbling on for Baldwin, it was six weeks, and then they lost a vote of confidence, and then they went to another election. Wow, I mean, another. I mean, Brenda would really be unhappy if there was another election <laughs> in six weeks. Helen, do you, Chris's scenario, which is if she were to step down, you can't see anyone other than Boris Johnson. But, but really, yeah. I mean, I, I have to say, I think that this scenario is entirely unlikely. So, I preface everything I say. Yeah, we're going to move on to others. We're not. We're not saying this is going to happen with that. But they don't have an alternative candidate at the moment in terms of replacing her. In part because what's happened to the Conservative Party since 2015 general election when we were sitting here before is is that you know, a significant number of the upper echelons of the party have just moved out of politics. And before we move on to the next scenario, if the Labour Party were more like the Conservative Party, which is obviously a slightly ridiculous thing to say, I mean, there is no way I think that Jeremy Corbyn could lead a coalition government under those circumstances, partly because he wouldn't have enough people in his own party willing to serve. But a ruthless Labour Party would ditch him and stick in someone who could lead a coalition government. But of course, the Labour Party in its current state, that's way outside the bounds of possibility, right? If Cor- Under these circumstances, Corbyn has triumphed and he just remains there as leader of the opposition, sniping away. Yeah. Everything would turn on the attitude of the Scottish nationalists. I mean, I'm assuming we're talking about a scenario where there are fewer Labour MPs than Conservative MPs, but yeah, we were are. the nationalists to offer a confidence and supply deal, you could imagine a Labour minority government functioning for a bit. And 
one can imagine an accelerated timetable for a second independence referendum, or you can imagine some demands that the nationalists might make that the Labour Party leadership would be willing to concede in order to realise that vision, however briefly, of having Jeremy Corbyn inside Number 10 Downing Street. But could the Parliamentary Labour Party sustain that, even for a day? I think that the Parliamentary Labour Party was never going to tolerate Corbyn entering an arrangement with the Scottish Nationalists because it would be the death warrant for the next election. I mean, one of the striking things about this election is is that fear that the Conservatives used last time about the Labour-SNP relationship hasn't particularly come into play, and it's not come into play because... Ultimately, people haven't really thought there's a prospect of a Labour government and Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister. But as soon as you're into that scenario where that is real, not one that I think will happen at all, then that argument very much comes back to the surface. And to actually have it in government, I mean, Labour will be shedding seats all over England under that scenario. And the next time an election was called... Again, we are straying now into the realms of things that aren't going to happen. So let's talk about the second scenario, which is possibly more likely. Certainly, so where we are with the polls now, we don't believe them, partly because they're all over the place, but if you average them out, the Tories have a lead of about 6 or 7%. And within the margin of error, that could go down a bit, could go up a bit, who knows? I mean, we just don't know. We're not trying to suggest that we've learnt anything about how to read these polls, because we haven't. But there's a, a scenario in which she, Mrs May, wins, but she wins sort of kind of majority she has at the moment so maybe a majority of 20 or something so she calls an election as Chris says she wants the British people to give her the mandate to negotiate hard on Brexit and so on send a message to all the people she wants to send a message to and actually what she's returned with is a workable majority sort of majority that she had before that John Major had in 1992 but it looks like a failure because she asked for a big vote of support and we're back at the status quo I mean, you see, you could have a scenario where it's exactly the same result at the last election, which would be sort of bizarre given all the turmoil and volatility. So the assumption is that she would be gravely weakened there. But it seems to me that three things would be different. One, she'd won on her manifesto. And it would be a working majority. In another British system, you can govern under those conditions. Two, Jeremy Corbyn would be nailed in place as leader of the opposition. There would be no... It would be very hard to get rid of him because he would still have had a success. Maybe... The Labour Parliamentary Party would try, but it would be very difficult. And that's a net plus for the Conservatives. And three, almost everyone in the election, given that almost no one's going to vote Liberal Democrat, would have in some sense or another endorsed Brexit. So it is different. She's weakened, unquestionably, and yet, for those three reasons, her position would be strengthened. Yeah, I think that she would be weakened inside the Conservative Party because... People in the Conservative Party would think that there was a chance to win a much bigger majority and it had not been taken and they would blame her and they would blame the advisers that she has and the fact that that she simply seems unable to widen that out within the party. But at the same time, I think there's another reason why she would be strengthened and that is she's got rid of George Osborne and that is no mean thing in the context of where she started from, which was that she wanted to be able to have more freedom of manoeuvre domestically in terms of her negotiating options in relation to Brexit. And as you said, quite rightly, the first way in which she's been really strengthened here would be the failure of the Liberal Democrats. And I don't think that can be overestimated because what we would be saying is is actually there is no domestic appetite in Britain for rerunning the referendum, which is essentially what the Liberal Democrats have wanted to do. And at the same time, her biggest internal critic within the parliamentary party with clearly from the way he's behaved during this election campaign, a massive personal grudge against her is no longer in parliament is no longer in a position where he can mobilize the mps who he's 
gave its patronage to during his time as um, Chancellor into an anti-May faction within Parliament to try to stop the deal that she might want to make about Brexit. So I think that she would be in a stronger position, even though she would come under intense criticism within the Conservative Party itself. Yeah, she would be strengthened, and at the same time, the next day, the Tory party would plot to replace her. And for me, it comes back to what Helen was saying in the sense of who are the alternatives and who would challenge her. Um, George Orsman off the pitch. Under any other circumstances, if she comes back with the same number of seats, you'd automatically think that she was going to be pushed out the door. But who's going to do the pushing? I don't think Boris is actually set up to do it. The only other person who's in my mind who might be wanting to jump from the tall grass is David Davis and really push an agenda that pushes towards a hard Brexit. But will the Conservative Party sustain that? I don't think they would. As we said, under a usual, here you've called the election and you didn't make any gains, we'd expect you to be going. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. So the only, the only scenario, getting back to scenarios where we, I think Theresa May has gone, is a hung parliament. Helen's point about George Osborne, I mean, it, whatever happens, and we're going to talk about some other scenarios in a second, landslides and everything else, what all of them have in common is that the people who want to oppose Brexit have been kind of flushed out of Parliament. And so the failure of the Liberal Democrats means that the primary opposition to whatever happens around Brexit in the House of Lords has been completely undermined because the number of Lib Dems in the House of Lords is going to look laughable after this election. If they're going to get 6 7 8% of the vote and still have this great swathe of 100-plus peers, I can't see those peers having any real purchase on this. And then you've got George Osborne as editor of the Evening Standard. So you've basically got an editor of a London newspaper, some peers in the House of Lords who have basically, I think, no democratic legitimacy, and the Commons, whatever the personal beliefs of MPs, They've just been elected in a general election where Brexit won. You can even put together a case to say that with a small majority, Mrs May would have a stronger hand in the negotiations with the European Union, which is to say that she can credibly tell the people with whom she's negotiating that unless they make concessions, she won't be able to get a deal through the House of Commons in a way that if she has an enormous majority, that kind of negotiating ploy is never going to work. But I'd still suspect that if the new parliament has roughly the same composition as the old parliament, the explosion of anger from the Conservative backbenches directed against the leadership coterie will be enormous and I think will be difficult for Mrs May to ride out. So it's true that there isn't an obvious challenger in place, but I can envisage a scenario where there's so much open bitterness about what's been happening that the Prime Minister decides she can't carry on. It might then be that a succession paves the way for somebody, a continuity candidate like Amber Rudd. But I would have thought the animosity, the bile, the vindictiveness, the resentment against the leadership in the event of a small majority would be overwhelming. And the Tory party, they're very good at being ruthless and acting decisively. They're also very good at animosity and bile as well. (laughs) There's never any shortage of that inside the parliamentary party. And she, I think whatever happens, a lot of people within her own party don't think the same about her as they did six weeks ago. And I think a lot is to do with that leadership style of working very closely with people like um, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy. Uh, The manifesto emerged from an extremely close-knit group of people, and that will serve as the focus of criticism. As long as you're winning, you can get away with an awful lot, but as soon as you stop winning, it's very obvious where the criticism is going to be directed. And 
there's no way that the dementia tax would have been such a prominent element of the manifesto if the manifesto had been widely consulted upon by Conservative MPs in marginal seats. It's the product of a, a certain approach to political management. Theresa May is thoroughly invested in that approach, and it's not obvious she can change her ways, and so that's why I think she would be on her way out. Okay, so then if we look at another indicator, which is the betting markets, which we've also learned to thoroughly mistrust, but still, they say what they say because real money is at stake. They're currently predicting a Tory majority of, I think, 70, 80 in that range. They vary a bit. So that would be close to justifying her decision, or maybe it would fully justify her decision to call an election. And in some ways, you could say that scenario, she really all her Christmases have come at once because that could happen with Labour's vote share increasing, which still seems more than possible from last time, but seats being lost. Jeremy Corbyn still has had a good campaign, certainly in the eyes of his supporters. I mean, crucially, the idea that Corbyn in a general election, the people who've been passionately supporting him would suddenly come to realise the error of their ways. The opposite has happened. I think the people who most passionately support Jeremy Corbyn have been given everything they wanted from this campaign, from this manifesto, from his style, from the way in which he has conducted himself. You are not going to persuade those people, I think, that he has failed. So you have a weakened Labour Party in Parliament, but you still have Jeremy Corbyn probably as leader. She has a working majority. She has routed the anti-Brexiteers. And she's away. I mean, what's the catch for her? The, the catch for her is that she and the Conservative Party own every single piece of the next five years in terms of outcomes, in terms of the Brexit outcome, in terms of what happens with the NHS, in terms of what happens in terms of the economic pathway of the country. And so any conversation which says we had difficulty getting things through Parliament or we had any speed bumps because of a small majority or other parties getting in a way, that's gone. And so, fine, you know, trumpets and uh, marching band and it wasn't a fantastic election. Great. But talk to us in four years if Brexit isn't a success and if the NHS is still in crisis and if, if, if. That's when it comes home to roost. I would agree with everything Finbar just said if we were talking about a blowout Tory landslide, if we were looking at a 1987-style result with a majority of over 100. I think that's clearly what Theresa May wanted, what she expected when she called the election. Um, And I think in those circumstances, the Conservative Party would own the consequences. And this election may, with not too much hindsight, come to look like a very good one to have lost because of the likely consequences of the political consequences of being the governing party that presides over a process as fraught with danger as Brexit. If the majority is 60 or 70 or 80, I don't think it will be plain sailing for Mrs May in the near future. I think there will still be residual bitterness that she didn't do better. A lot will depend on how the press and the politicians spin the post-election results. But that's the kind of sniping I think that she would be able to, to pull through. If she has a majority of 60, will she think it was worth doing? I'm not sure. I think it needs to be bigger than that. I'm not sure about that because I think that if she gets a majority in this range, she will have won seats across the Midlands and in the northwest and possibly in the northeast as well. Though I think probably if we're talking going into any significant gains in the northeast, we're talking 100 plus majority. And we should say a few seats in Scotland too. Yeah, I, I'm kind of taking the seats in Scotland for granted in this scenario. <laughs> Don't uh, take anything for granted. <laughs> 
I'll take the seat on the borders. It's Berwick something and Roxburgh. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty absolutely certain about that one. So I think that what we would see in this scenario is a situation in which the Conservative Party had re-established itself in parts of the country which it's essentially vacated since 1997. And that would be a, a very significant turn in British politics. And I, I think that although she might well have had hopes of a 100-plus majority, and I have to say they've, I still think it's more likely that there will be a 100-plus majority than the other scenarios... I think that in context that 70 is actually would be quite a stunning result because this is an election that still would be fought on the old boundaries. It would take the Conservative Party back into parts of the country it has vacated for several decades. And she would be able to say that this is not something that David Cameron would have been able to do. And in that respect, I think she would be right. And the mirror image of that is that the Labour Party would have been piling up votes in the parts of the country where it's strong and where Corbyn has a lot of appeal, particularly in London, some university towns, maybe even including this one. But the electoral map will look very, very scary for them, because it will look like there are these bastions in which, and Corbyn's campaign has sort of played on this, in which he's basically been preaching to, in lots of places, to the converted, piling up votes. And in a weird way, it reflects Hillary Clinton's campaign, and he seems to be piling on votes in places that he doesn't necessarily need them. So he may well end up adding to the vote share and losing significant numbers of seats. And that's got to be very bad news for the Labour Party. I think it's also very bad news for Corbyn, because I think that although that his supporters will certainly try to spin a story that it's all about vote share, I think if you're seeing carnage across the Midlands and parts of the North West, it will be pretty difficult actually to hold that argument. And Keir Starmer laid down a marker early in the campaign in which he said we have to remember this is a first-past-the-post system and the only thing that counts is the number of seats. And 70-80 majority, Labour are really struggling to get beyond a core vote which is never going to get them close to forming another government. So does Corbyn, we talked about May staggering on, we have no idea really with the Labour Party because so much depends upon the rules, but in that scenario, are his days numbered? I think you've got an impasse at that point because on the one hand that you'd have the Corbynite membership who would certainly think that there was absolutely no case whatsoever for getting rid of him because he'd be vindicated and you'd have the parliamentary party who'd think there absolutely was a case for getting rid of him because he's just you know, thrown the Labour Party into a state of total disrepair in, in parts of the country. And I think that what you'd have is a kind of ongoing stalemate that we've essentially seen since he was elected in the summer of 2015. So let's briefly do the final scenario, the one that Chris mentioned and Helen, you've touched on, which is a landslide. Let's say a landslide is 100, 120 seat majority or maybe even more still possible. At that point, Corbyn may be the victim to everyone's surprise of having elevated expectations so that he suddenly disappoints even his supporters, many of whom seem to be saying that they're, I mean, the 18 to 24 age group I saw, large numbers of them think that he's going to win, I mean actually win. Well if there are those expectations out there and there's an absolute disaster, presumably at that point the Labour Party for all its problems with moving quickly in Parliament might move quite quickly. If you're in the position that they're losing seats and they're losing vote share, I think you can. I think that tension that you talked about earlier, that you lose seats but you're increasing vote share, still is a buttress. And it's too much of a buttress under the current rules for electing a Labour leader. And the attempt was made to say that you had to get renominated onto the paper in the last one and that fell down. So he's always going to be on the paper. And I think until there's a rule change, I mean, it would have to be a catastrophic crash, I think, for that core vote outside of the PLP to desert him at this moment in time. The very last newspaper article that Lenin wrote before he died had the title, Better Fewer, But Better. 
And I think there's a lot of that attitude on the left of the Labour Party these days. Um, there isn't thought that losing a big chunk of the parliamentary party won't be any great loss because the parliamentary party has been widely regarded as useless. I think there will be considerable willingness on the left of the party to take a great big hit to try to hold on to the leadership and then to try to rebuild when you have faced a large defeat. On the whole, the only way is up. And one of the things the election does seem to have sorted out is that there are no serious challenges to the Labour Party's position as the only serious anti-conservative party in England and Wales. Even in the face of an enormous defeat, I think the Parliamentary Labour Party would think twice before trying to purge the leader. And just as he was able to do last year a Corbyn re-election campaign would be able to reawaken a great deal of enthusiasm from young party members, from old left-wing party members, from people who think he had a good campaign, and so on. It isn't going to be easy to, to get rid of him, even in the face of a, an electoral meltdown. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One last question about these different scenarios. So presumably one of the big differences between either a hung parliament or a narrow Tory victory and the other possibilities that Mrs May basically gets what she wants is in those second cases she can face down the SNP call for a second referendum and in the first two cases it's much harder and that potentially is one of the central issues in British politics going forward. I mean a landslide for instance would give her lots of freedom to push back against the SNP wouldn't it? It would, but I think that the more revealing thing in some sense about the election is is how weak, actually, the Scottish nationalist position has become on the referendum. If you look at the data, polling data, with all the usual caveats about polls on support for independence, it's clearly moving away from that position. The Scottish nationalists are going to lose seats in Scotland, quite possibly to all three of the other parties. And if you were Nicola Sturgeon, it's not clear that actually you would want a Conservative government or minority Conservative government under the hung parliament scenario actually to concede a referendum. So be careful what you wish for. And it doesn't solve the Northern Ireland problem because that's wrapped into Brexit and hard border, soft border. That's still going to be there no matter whether it's a hung parliament or a massive landslide. So we're going to have lots more to talk about, not just next week, but for about the next five years. Looking back over the last six weeks... And again, we should say, and we're not in any sense trying to trivialise it, we, we will bracket the two terrorist attacks. It's still been a remarkable campaign. And it's had twists and turns. It's quite long by British standards. An American friend was saying to me, oh, you're so lucky your campaigns are so short. And this one has felt to me really long. What's most surprised you, things that you six weeks ago couldn't have foreseen coming, Finbar? Probably the two things that surprised me through the campaign were the fact that there was any th actual detail in the Conservative manifesto, given the structure of the election, 
Salisbury Convention and everything else aside, it was stunning to me that they put themselves in that position. And as Chris was saying earlier, just a manifesto written in such a small, tight group made so many mistakes. Because to that point, the polls weren't going in the direction of the polls were very solidly in the Conservatives' favour. And that seems to be a major, major turning point. I think you're probably right. There's always a temptation, I think, to sort of look for turning points. And we can't really be sure where they were. So my memory of the last election, for instance, is people decided quite quickly after the result came in that when Ed Miliband confronted that guy on question time about zero hours contracts and then stumbled as he left the stage, that stumble, you know, these sort of symbolic things. And I'm no question the manifesto U-turn changed the narrative. Do you have any sense that lurking behind that was a feeling that she had called an election having said she wouldn't, and that already some of the damage had been done in that her claim as a politician, which is what you see is what you get, had started to unravel. So it was a kind of double effect, because I think a lot of people feel that she hasn't made a compelling case as to why we needed this election. I don't think she made a compelling case at all. And actually, the the second thing that surprised me the most was the level of blatant media handling and avoiding that's gone across the parties, by the way, not just for the Conservatives, but the moment to say, I want your trust and I am not going to engage in direct one-to-ones and I'm leaving the pitch. And the amount of not answering questions, there's been some very rapid text analysis of interviews, both for Corbyn and for Theresa May, and that they're roughly answering about 25% of questions that are asked to them in any sense that they're actually answering the question. And it's is that, so Is that blatant. low for a politician? Uh, uh, probably <laughs> around the standard number. But it feels so blatant through this election. That's what surprised me, that it's just so naked in that sense. That feeling of, I call the election, I must call the election, but then I'm just going to step back. We've talked a bit about elections it reminds us of. So it does remind me a bit of 1987, the famous Tory wobble election, a week before an election that Margaret Thatcher was thought to be, should win under any circumstances, a week before the polls got to within four points, I think, the one that scared them with Kinnock and, and Thatcher and you know, panic inside Conservative Central Office. She was thought to have been very lacklustre and whatever. And then they solidified and, and the campaign solidified over the final week. And you know, a week ago when she avoided the Cambridge debate... Corbyn turned up. I thought it was a tiny bit hubristic of him to show up, actually, given he had good reasons not to, if he was going to be a serious alternative prime minister. And he's he's slightly overextended himself in the last week, calling on her to resign over policing numbers and so on. And there is a feeling of solidifying around the, the Tory campaign. And some of these things, like the avoiding of being questioned, the fact that she's called an election and she doesn't want to actually make her case in these forums, but it would have been hard for her to make her case on that stage in Cambridge. That may, in the end, look like it didn't count for much. Is there at least a possibility that the twists and turns of this campaign, as in many campaigns, will in the long run look a bit frothy and the underlying story isn't hugely different from where we were four to six weeks ago? I agree that 1987 is probably the best all-things-considered analogy to the current campaign, One of the things people are going to say after the fact is what they said about 1987, that Labour won the campaign but lost the election. In terms of what you're saying a moment ago about the manifesto, I mean, all I've got to go on is a hunch, but I think the sequencing is slightly different. I think the very high poll numbers the Prime Minister had after calling the election, I think, strongly suggests people think she was breaking a promise that mattered or that she was a liar and so on. I think it's that the focused attention on the dementia tax and the way that played into so many awkward narratives for the Conservatives. Labour has, in previous elections, tried running with scare stories about the NHS and 
like The Boy Who Cries Wolf, they get less effective over time. But this was a way of raising again people's nervousness about what the Conservatives do with issues to do with care. It taps into anxieties about housing. It offends against that British social democracy that's still there. The public opinion is still committed to a broadly universal welfare state. The wheels began to come off when people looked at the dementia tax. There were a number of different ways you could criticise it so that things that didn't annoy some people did annoy other people. And that's what made the triumphalist narrative of Mrs May marching to her individual mandate. That's what began the big wobble. And in the wake of that, people found other reasons to be sceptical about her public presentation, the way she was handling the media, and so on and so on. I do think it was the turning point. I think it is a turning point, or a possible turning point in the campaign, not in terms of the outcome necessarily, but in terms of the way in which Mrs May handled this general election. Because I think that if you look at it from her point of view in the position of the Conservatives, what that manifesto did was to take a serious risk with an election that was essentially won. And she decided, not just about the social care proposal, but through the triple lock issue and the winter fuel allowance, to deprive a part of the Conservative core vote of certain things that it has got used to. So if you look at it in this sense, it is a, I can win a a landslide, or I can win a a large majority, and in doing so I can make governing easier. And tell some tough truths. And in that sense is, is that for someone who was we've been told is a risk-averse politician, it was a really big gamble because essentially in the face of a campaign where basically you win by not having cock-ups, which she then calls for herself and trying to get tactical gains, she tried to address a, a serious policy question in the middle of what you might say in the face of Brexit is a, is a national emergency. I mean, that's an astonishing thing for a politician to do. Now, I think that she thought she had enough political capital that she could do that. And part of the anger in the Conservative Party with her is is because they're not used to that kind of approach. I mean, if you look at what happened in the 2015 general election campaign, what happened was is that the Conservative Party got more and more fiscally incontinent as the election went on, making more and more promises literally on the hoof after the manifesto had come out about childcare and about inheritance tax. So this is someone who actually took a, a bold gamble. Now, I think that the part in which it's then caused a more problems than she probably anticipated is that there was no communication strategy developed around it. She allowed, in part because she's a relatively poor communicator standing on her feet and because she didn't have other people in place to do it for her, a narrative to take place around those social care um, proposals that essentially denied the fact that actually if we're going to call it a dementia tax, I think that's a silly name, but if we're going to call it that, it's already been in place. It's been in place since 1948. And actually, in terms of people caught up in that, situation in terms of selling their houses in their lifetime is actually that they were winners of what was being proposed because it it put a floor on the assets that could be used and it was a case of the assets didn't have to be sold in a person's lifetime. So in that sense it was absolutely poor execution of what actually I think was quite a bold strategic gamble. But do we think we're going to get after the election the risk taker or the one, the person who having taken the risk got cold feet? Which Theresa May are we going to get? Because it makes a huge difference, not least to the kind of Brexit we're going to get. Because I agree with Helen. She did reveal herself in this campaign in some ways to be not a reckless politician, but someone who was prepared to trade off certain things that were being given to her on a plate for some long-term benefits. 
And then four days later, she appeared to shy away from that. I could be wrong, but one of the things that's niggling me about the 70-plus seat majority into the landside territory is what happens in the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party, because the Conservative Party is very good at being fractured and sniping and beating itself internally. And the party, the reason why we're here is why Cameron put the referendum in place and why now we've gone through the referendum and we're heading towards Brexit. So in the landslide version, does the Conservative Party start turning on itself again? And if that happens to me, then you get a much more nervous Theresa May, you get a much more risk-averse Theresa May, because she'll be fighting internal party battles at the same time. So briefly, to me, the big story of the election is the failure of the Liberal Democrats. I want to say the failure of Liberal democracy, because it's now, as we were saying earlier, it's now located in the Evening Standard in the House of Lords. Not just that the Labour Party seems to have persuaded people who are anti-Tory that that's the only place for them to go. And and that, to me, is a surprise in that I've seen, and you know, Vox Pops and in polling, people have said, well, the reason I'm voting Labour, even though I don't like Corbyn, is that's the only way we're going to get effective opposition to Theresa May. I vote for the Lib Dems is wasted. So we don't know much about Jeremy Corbyn. We know two things. He's a good campaigner and he's an absolutely catastrophic leader of the opposition in the House of Commons. So it seems to me that a vote for Labour under these circumstances has the opposite effect in that if you want opposition to the Conservative Party, you do not want a Corbyn-led opposition in the commons and the commons is still where politics happens but it's also the case that Tory voters haven't defected to the Lib Dems at all as far as one can tell so pro-European pro-Remain Tories of whom we know there were quite a few not a huge number but quite a few particularly in the south and there was this kind of tale at the start of the campaign that the Conservatives would win all sorts of seats in the Midlands and the North from Labour that they weren't usually anywhere close to winning but they would lose to the Lib Dems in the southwest. that great triumph they'd had before a lot of those seats would go back but it looks like none of them so two-party politics has reasserted itself and the Lib Dems have been squeezed on both fronts now is it just because they've run a dreadful campaign or were they were they just stuck this time nowhere for them to go what happened what happened (laughs) he says slightly plaintively (laughs) that their coalition was pulled apart mm-hmm. when in the past that is what happened in the, in the past when they've had 15 20 percent of the vote it's been a regional block of support in the southwest also in some of the the borders areas of england and scotland the wales it's been students uh, young voters it's been a suburban vote of a pro-european middle class and then the Liberals have been successful in local government and by-elections, and that gives them little pockets of activism and activity that they benefit from that carries over to support in general elections as well. And almost all of that has been swept away. Their local election mojo returned a bit after the Brexit referendum, which was one of the things that made them optimistic going into first the local council elections last month and then the current general election. But... It hasn't worked for them in the general election. The student vote hasn't come back to them. The only place where they seem to be a bit buoyant is in south-west London, in the affluent outer London suburbs. South-west London is not... I mean, we talk about Labour retreating to its bastions. South-west London's not enough. And Vince Cable may may very well win in Twickenham. Uh, Sarah Olney may defend her seat in Richmond Park, although that's not, not guaranteed. They may win the seat in Kingston and Surbiton. But that's the only place where there seems to be this substantial middle-class Remain vote that is willing to stick with the Liberal Democrats. In the in the southwest, in the university towns, in some of their urban seats, um, they're, they're getting nowhere. And maybe I'm naive, but that to me is a surprise. Am I wrong to be surprised? 
Well, I think that there are several things in play here, none of which are ultimately are that surprising. The first of them is that the Liberal Democrats were entirely cavalier about the fact that a third of their voters at the last election, or around a third of their voters, were Leave voters. They simply wrote those people off and said, you're not welcome, essentially, carrying on voting for us by the position that they that took. The second thing is, is, is that the position that they took in trying to be the anti-Brexit party was ultimately, I think, incoherent once you factor in the fact that negotiations have to take place on the terms on which Britain is going to leave, or at least the, the trading terms that are going to then be established. Whichever way that they presented it, it ultimately amounted to, we don't like the referendum result and we'd like to ban it again. Third, I think, in terms of the South West, I, I just don't know where the people who thought that these, these seats were coming back to the Liberal Democrats were coming from, because historically, the South West has probably been more Eurosceptic than any other part of the country. Fourthly, I think there was a problem with Farron in the sense that essentially the Liberal Democrats wanted to appeal to a metropolitan Liberal vote. I agree with Chris that the constituency of that is actually too small, not least because a significant part of those voters are tribal Labour voters. But in the way in which he comes across, Tim Farron is neither metropolitan nor liberal. So the, the message and the messenger just don't fit yeah, together. And once we've got to fourthly, the Lib Dems are fit done. Together really. as well. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I have got fifthly as well. Have you go on quickly? <laughs> the fifthly, fifthly is, is, is that in, in, fifthly. in a binary election, which this became quite quickly, the idea that the Conservative Remain vote was going to do anything other than oppose a Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, I think was absolutely fanciful. So Helen, can I ask you something that you tweeted this week, which did seem to me really interesting, and let's give this a bit more historical perspective, where you said, no question, the really striking thing in this campaign is we're back to two-party politics in Britain for now anyway. Or at least in England and Wales. It's already in England and Wales, yeah, I should say. Different in Scotland. And you said that it's interesting that the two-party system in England and Wales, certainly, seemed to go away when Britain entered the European community as it was then, so in 1973. So the 74 election was the beginning of the end of the two-party system. You did it more concisely than this because it was a tweet. And now, post-Brexit, it's coming back. So though this hasn't, in weird ways, been as centrally Brexit an election as we thought it would be, it is the Brexit election, and the signal it's the Brexit election is it's post-Brexit because two-party politics is back that's what leaving the European Union does to British politics. I mean, I put it, I think, as is it a coincidence? Because I actually think it's a, a genuine question that I don't know the, so it might the, be a the coincidence to. I, th- I think that what is true is, is that British membership of the European community and then the European Union in different ways caused significant problems for both of the main parties. It divided them, and Labour was very divided about EC membership in the 1970s and 1980s and the Conservatives became divided essentially from the point of monetary union coming onto the EC's agenda from the late And that allows 19- other parties to pick off supporters? Yeah, certainly in the case of the Conservatives what it ultimately did was to trash their reputation for governing competence over the exchange rate mechanism and you could argue that perhaps until this election that they never recovered from that point because you know if we recall that they haven't got past 37% of the vote since the 1992 And they definitely will get past it. If they didn't get past 37% of the vote this time, then yeah. this podcast is done because I'm retiring. Yeah, So, and they won't have been there since the ERM disaster from their point of view happened. And clearly that also then fed into the way in which Maastricht became very poisonous or the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty became very poisonous within the Parliamentary Conservative Party during the 1990s. So I think it's certainly the case that the Conservative resurgence, if we're going to call it that, probably was dependent on Britain 
leaving the European Union. Um, the bigger mystery, in a way, is Labour's ability to it is, yeah. hoover up the other side of the equation. And I think that the bit that doesn't really fit is, is then trying to understand the relationship of the Liberals, in part in relation to Labour, but also in relation to the Conservatives. Because I think if you go back to the 1974 general election and the rise of the, the Liberal vote in that election, and certainly the February one anyway, it's quite hard to find an explanation of that that's got much to do with the European community. It's got, I think, to do with disaffected Conservatives who did not like Heath's confrontational style of government. Chris, do you think people will look back on this election and see it as the beginning of a new era in British politics because Brexit, whatever it comes to mean, has just changed the dynamics? Yes, I think the structures of British political competition will change. After Brexit, the way government manages the economy is going to change. There's going to be a lot more. We're going to hear the words industrial strategy a lot more than we've heard over the last 20 or 30 years. Whether it means a stable period of two-party politics, I don't know. As I say, if the Conservatives handle Brexit badly and the electorate wants to punish them, there are great big chunks of the country where there'll be large numbers of voters who don't like the Conservative Party, but which are not obviously Labour voting parts of the country. Again, think of all of almost all of the South West outside of Exeter and Plymouth. So there will be openings for a kind of liberal revival, but it's very difficult just yet to see what the precise contours of that might look like. You mentioned the economy there. It is striking. Not only have we not discussed it much, but it's really, for an election which is returning to traditional British bread and butter issues, two-party politics, I should say, England and Wales, but you know what I mean. The discussion of Britain's economic prospects, leaving aside Brexit, we don't know what will happen, has been absolutely minimal. In some sense, the most surprising thing about the Conservative campaign is is how they have been unwilling to engage on the economy and unwilling to attack Corbyn that seriously on the economy. And I think that's in part because they didn't put themselves in a very good position to do so with the approach that they took to fiscal issues in their own manifesto. But I think there was this is where I do think there's been complacency in the Conservative campaign, the idea that that the Labour manifesto would somehow speak for itself in terms of the going back to the nationalisation in the 1970s. But I think that one thing that we've you know, certainly learnt in this election campaign is, is that for those people who weren't alive during the 1970s, is these arguments about the 1970s go absolutely nowhere. You know, the Conservatives, you know, as late as 1992, going back to that election again, they could still put images of the winter of discontent into their party political broadcast. And it was enough to, you know, give whole sections of the voters the heebie-jeebies. And we're not going, going back to that. But you can see on the economy, the fact that these things don't speak for themselves about nationalisation. And, and you can see how there's a, a massive age difference in terms of the perceptions of Corbyn and the IRA, that these older arguments simply don't play with younger voters. I'm stunned that all of the austerity conversation, deficit, debt, etc. just disappeared. Um, and the thing that I'm curious about is whether or not there are the conditions post a landslide and, for example, Corbyn taking the Labour Party further to the left in purity terms, as it were, whether there is, as The Economist said, the missing middle, whether something can fill the missing middle. Um, I don't see it as a Liberal Democrat revival, and it's incredibly hard to start new parties. But what would step in in the middle and actually take any of the vote share? Is there a need for a new party? And that would be, for me, the breaking again of the two-party politics. 
So we're going to talk about that over the months ahead, but we're going to talk about it more immediately because we're going to reconvene some of us on Friday and do another episode. We'll also do a Facebook Live in response to the results after they've come in. We're having breakfast in our building here in Cambridge and uh, we're going to try and grab some people, see what they think. If I have to resign because the Tories have got less than 37% of the vote, I will do it live on air, I guess. If you want to find out more about who we are and Helen Finbar, Chris and me, do go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. You can find out about us. You can also listen to all of our previous episodes. We'll have our regular podcast back next week for a little bit more measured reflection on what happens on Thursday. But join us again in a couple of days and we will know which of the four scenarios has come to pass. And if it's a fifth one, I tried to stop Helen doing fifthly. <laughs> if it's a fifth one, we will do a lot of scrambling to catch up. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. A new, a new catchphrases and fifthly. <laughs> but, but, but sixthly, yeah. the, sixthly. the Liberals don't have the personnel. I mean, the yeah, scale. The, the, yeah. After Farron, the three best known national politicians are Clegg, Cable. Um, well, Cable's busy in Twitter, so yeah, not yeah, yeah. <laughs> 